0: We are working our way through the book of Exodus, and we just started the study a couple weeks ago. We're pretty early in the story. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. If you have a white or a blue Bible that we gave you, it's page 27. 27. We're going to start on page 26, I apologize, at the bottom right there. Um, We talked two weeks ago about how the book of Exodus is going to be the story of how the people of God become the people of God. So prior to this, God was speaking mostly to individuals and working on kind of like a case-by-case basis. And at the end of this, the, there's going to be a people that are God's people. And God is going to deal with these people as the people of God, as a group, as a whole. And so this is going to carry on through the rest of the scriptures, even to 2022. God wants to produce a people on the earth. Like God doesn't just want you to understand salvation and then end up going to heaven one day. God wants you to understand his goodness and sacrifice and redemption towards you and then become a part of a community of people who are proclaiming that good news to the entire earth. Like, that's the idea. That's what God wants to. He intends that you would belong to the community of those who celebrate and proclaim his goodness and redemption. That is why when Jesus left, he said, go and build a building. No, that's not what he said. Go and write a book. No, he didn't say that either. Go and make disciples. Because he's trying to produce a people. God's intention has always been to produce a people so then we are part of a whole that we matter and belong to something bigger than ourselves. So. We're going to see that process play out clearly in this entire book, but we're going to see like the seedlings of that process taking place this morning in Exodus chapter 2, and I think it's really interesting on how God is working that in his people. might be a little surprising as we go through it. So here we go. Verse 11 of chapter 2, we covered the first 10 verses last week, so we're jumping in the middle of the chapter here. One day, verse 11, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and and hid him in the sand. Side note, not in my notes, but if you have to look this way and then that way and then do the thing you're going to do and then cover it up, bad idea, right? (laughs) Just, and that's free. Not even in my notes. You're welcome. Bonus content right at the beginning. Good old life advice from Uncle Moses. So I read this and I think to myself, who made you in charge of this, Moses, like, what made you think that you could walk out on this morning and just start killing people and it would be okay? Like, who? why did you walk out and look at this situation and decide not only you needed to do something about it, but you were going to fix this problem? Like, what, what's going on? Who, who do you think you are, Moses? Why would you think this is your problem to solve? Why would you think this is your time to act? I think there's actually a pretty strong explanation when we think of the context of God producing a people, of why Moses thought this was his problem to solve. What's going on in his heart and mind in this moment? And and if you take a second and think about the people we know are in Moses's life, it might make a lot of sense. And you might see this bigger picture of how God is producing a people. Just a quick recap, okay? So you kind of catch up to speed with the story of where we're at here. The king of Egypt, and sometimes I'm going to call him king of Egypt, and sometimes I'm going to call him Pharaoh. And I apologize for that, but it's just the way my brain works. And then I also noticed as I was going through my notes, if I say baby Jesus instead of baby Moses, it's just like muscle memory, okay? So that I'm not. we're talking about baby Moses and the king of Egypt. Hopefully I get those right the rest of the way through. But the king of Egypt, because of his fear of the Hebrew people, had ordered that every single Hebrew baby boy, like infant, out of the womb was supposed to be murdered. Throw him in the Nile River is what he said. And he commanded everybody in the kingdom to do that. So he actually commissioned the people of his kingdom of Egypt because he was so fearful of the Hebrew people that if they saw an infant baby boy, Hebrew descent, they were to kill that baby. Okay, so this is dark times to say the least. Now Moses's mother had baby Moses and was trying to keep it a secret. Okay, so she hit him for three months, but if you've had a baby, right? I mean, we're like, we're like privileged beyond all privileged, right? Like the craziest time we could, like, oh, I don't want to go on a plane because my baby would cry, right? And I'd like we're all worried about our babies crying in restaurants and like. Think about if your baby cries and somebody finds out they're going to chuck it in the river, right? That's a whole different level of pressure, right? So Moses' mom is trying to do this with baby Moses for three months, trying to keep him quiet. Finally, she gets in three months and is like, I can't do it anymore, which is understandable if you've ever had an infant right? without snacks and goldfish and whatever else, right? So like she can't keep it quiet anymore. And so she ends up making a basket of reeds, putting them in the Nile River, which I kind of like is like this passive aggressive, like, I put them in the river like you said. But anyway, right? so she lets him go in the river, probably thinking she'd never see him again, and then leaves Moses's sister, so her older daughter, who's probably eight, seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there at this time, to kind of like play by the river and pretend like she's playing, but see what happens to the baby. So then the baby goes out in the river, Pharaoh's daughter, so king of Egypt's daughter, the princess of Egypt, comes down to take a bath, hears some crying in the reeds, goes over to see what's going on, finds the baby and not only doesn't kill the baby, but somehow decides that she's going to take care of the baby and like adopt the baby. So baby Moses is now adopted by the king of Egypt's daughter. And then Moses's sister, which is like the sweetest move of all time, like comes over and is like, hey, uh, doesn't look like you're prepared to breastfeed that baby. Do you want me to go find one of the Hebrew women to breastfeed that baby? And the king of Egypt's daughter is like, yeah, that's a great idea. So then Moses's sister goes back to Moses's mom and is like, the king of Egypt's daughter found a baby and needs someone to breastfeed it. And I thought you might be interested, (laughs) which is like. Amazing. Well done, Miriam. That's Moses' sister's name. So Moses is raised by his own mother and father until he no longer needs to be breastfed and is raised by the king of Egypt's daughter. So those are the kinds of people who are in Moses' life. Those are the people we know are raising this young man. When you think through what types of people these are, of course Moses grows up to be this type of person who is prone to action, who is prone to justice, who is prone to standing up for what's right, who living with integrity and doing what is right no matter the consequences. Let's start with Moses' mother. This is a woman who had a baby during a time period when it was government mandated that a baby, if it was a boy, was to be executed. So think this through for a second. You find out that you might be pregnant. Are you excited about that? No, you're terrified. Sorry, I didn't mean to, whoever said yeah, I didn't mean to like. No, you're terrified, right? You should be excited. You're not. Because you know if this baby is a boy, it's going to be executed and thrown in the river. That's terrifying. So you're sitting there like praying every single day, dear God, make it a girl. Dear God, please let it be a girl. Dear God, and the longer it goes, the bigger the bump gets, right? The more you're just like, oh man, you're terrified. Because you know, if this comes out a boy You're in trouble. And so now you start to get labor pains, and like, you know, the time's coming, and like, this is now your first baby, so you know it's probably happening, and you're like, are you happy? No, you're terrified, anxious. You're hoping God is answering your prayers. And this is a little baby girl. They're doing the thing where they talk to the baby. You know, the mom always does that. It's like, I hope you're a girl, right? That's probably what she's saying over and over and over and over. And the labor comes, the fear, the anxiety, the baby comes out. Did God answer that prayer? No, he did not. It's a baby boy. And now, you like, you're hiding that baby. You're trying to keep it quiet. You're like doing all the stuff you can. Like people around you are probably hearing the baby cry. Did you hear a baby cry? Like, no. Like some of you young people that got dogs and you shouldn't have, and now you have them in their apartment where it's not allowed. You know the pain, right? You're like, shh, right? Like you're trying to keep it quiet. You know that your neighbors know. You're just hoping they don't rat you out. That is a terrible feeling for three months, just not knowing at any moment the Egyptian authorities could show up at your door and kill your baby boy right in front of you. You want to talk about walking by faith. You want to talk about having to trust God for his daily provision. You want to talk about doing the right thing, even though it might have crazy consequences. She doesn't know when the Egyptians show up. You didn't kill your baby boy like you were mandated to do. The law says you should. Not only are we going to kill it, we're going to kill you. She has no idea what's happening. This is a woman who has had to trust God in ways that most of us will never understand. She's not just pretending to trust God. She is actually walking by faith in a way that is life or death for three months of her life every single day. Maybe even longer than that, nine months prior to that, for a year probably, this type of anxiety and having to trust God because she knows she is not in control of any of this. Then you have Moses' sister. We find out later, like I said, her name is Miriam. Miriam probably a couple years older than Moses at this point in time, sharing in her mother's fear, watching her mom have to trust God. I don't know if you've ever walked with somebody through something really hard and watched them have to trust God. And you're like actually praying to God on their behalf. Like, why wouldn't you make this easier on them, God, please? Like, That's really a hard place to be. And, And so Miriam's watching her mom go through this, praying obviously with her mom that this would not be a baby boy is my guess. Then the baby comes out and now she's probably helping as much as she can to keep this baby quiet. And then when the decision is made to like let the baby go, she's the one that's sitting there by the side of the river bank. Can you imagine how anxious those moments were? Watching your baby brother just be like floated out into the Nile River. There's crocodiles in the Nile River, by the way. When the Pharaoh's daughter comes down, King of Egypt's daughter comes down to take a bath, and you don't know, oh, no, she heard it. And you're just thinking, is she going to kill it? Is she going to push it in the water? Is she going to put her foot on it? What's she going to do? Right? And then she watches God come through in this incredible way where at the end of the story, Moses is back home being raised as commissioned by the palace to breastfeed baby Moses. Like, this is incredible. Like, she's seeing the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and coming through in ways she did not understand, like most of us would never, ever live through. And this has been going on for a while now, right? Moses' mom, Moses' dad probably, Moses' sister walking by faith, walking this out. Remember, God intends to produce a people. And this is how he's doing it. Right? He's showing himself faithful and good to generations of people. And they pass that lifestyle and identity on to the next generation, trusting God, walking by faith. You guys see us do this. You do this. And this has been going on for even longer than just Moses' family. Not forget, remember chapter 1, Moses' mom and dad had this example set for them. If you remember the integrity of the midwives in chapter one, when Pharaoh said, hey, when you see a Hebrew baby and it's a boy, kill it on the spot. And they're like, we're not doing that. And they didn't do it. And what does it say at the end of chapter one? God bless them. Right? So this is the example that's set for them. Like They did the thing that God told them to do, even though there might have been crazy consequences. And God blessed them mightily. And now Moses' family is like, hey, we know people who did what God called us to do in the face of adversity. Maybe if we're faithful and live with integrity and do what God calls us to do in the face of adversity, God will bless us too. And he's now building a people, example after example after example after example. We have this legacy two chapters in, the people of God walking by faith, trusting in God, seeing God come through in the difficulty and the hardship, and these are the types of people that raised Moses. You don't think this had an effect on how he saw the world in his place and plan, his place in the plan of God for his people? Of course it did. Think about the stories Moses must have heard when he was growing up, right? Something tells me he talked more about God coming through than how bad the Seahawks are going to suck without Russell Wilson. Right? Like there was like, they were sitting around barbecues, like talking about high school sports. No, they were like, hey, the Egyptians came in, didn't find our baby. Hey, this person, like, this is like an incredible story, probably story after story after story of God's goodness and faithfulness and bringing these people through. And Moses grows up in this family and community of people who actually had to walk by faith and saw God make a way where there was no way. Of course Moses grew up to believe that God would deliver his people. Like this is not a man who grew up in a family of hypocrites. This is not a man who grew up in a family of, of people who thought about believing in God, who said they believed in God but lived something else. This is the product of a family legacy of walking by faith, who also existed in a community of people who walked by faith. The identity of this people was that they are God's people, and they actually lived as if that was true. So when Moses grows up, it's as normal as breathing for him to live life like he believes God will save his people. This is a powerful picture for us. Especially for me, I got three kids right now. As a youth pastor for a long time, you know what I know about kids? They could tell when you're full of crap. <laughs> it's an incredibly powerful picture for us because our kids can smell hypocrisy on us. So if you want to say you live by faith and you just walk by sight, if you want to say you trust in God, but you trust in your wallet, or you trust in your comfort, or you trust in your convenience, which is so tempting to do in America in 2022, if you want to say something and live something else, your kids are going to see that. The young people, of the next generation, they're all going to see that. Like, you can't, you can't fit, like, they know. They live in your house. They hear you talk. This is a powerful like encouragement for us. I kept thinking this week about the average American kid and just like the types of gatherings they would be in and the types of stories they would hear. And, and I don't know if we are the type of people or tell the types of stories of the goodness and faithfulness of God, maybe because we don't really walk by faith that much. That was my conviction. I'm sharing it with you. Like, I don't want to like make you all feel bad, like, come to church and hear how much you don't walk by faith. But I was just like, man, I hope my kid gets those types of stories. I hope your kid gets that type of story when he comes to my house. I hope my kid gets that type of story when he goes to your house. Like, that's my dream for this type of people, right? This is the type of people that God is producing, a different kind of people on the earth. And I hope that's what's happening here. Here's the bottom line, guys. The best thing that we can do for our kids and the next generation is to walk by faith. And not only walk by faith, but surround ourselves with other people who are also walking by faith. If we live with integrity before the Lord, do the things God is telling us to do, because the next generation is going to learn from what we do way more than what we say. Somebody say amen. Amen. Now, there's another really important person in Moses' life I want to touch on before we move on. I want to point out, and it's the king's daughter, Moses' stepmom, right, Pharaoh's daughter. This is a woman we don't know anything about other than when it was the law to kill a baby boy, she wouldn't do it. And not only would she not do it, she did the opposite. She embraced that baby and raised him as her own. This is not a passive woman. This is not a woman who's indifferent to suffering. This is a very compassionate, very kind, very action-oriented woman. Like, when you see something going wrong, she didn't walk on the other side of the street. She picked up that baby and said, somebody needs to raise this. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit was telling her too, but this is a woman that raised Moses, right? You think that he got passivity from her? Like, she saw a baby in the river and decided to raise it for the rest of its life. This is a level of compassion and sacrificial love and conviction to do the right thing that was clearly passed on to Moses as she raised him. And this is where it starts to get a little sticky, right? Because sometimes as the church, we position ourselves as the good guys, and everybody on the outside is the bad guys. And we actually position ourselves like, this is our team, and that's the other team. So if we are a team and they're a an other team, there are enemies. And the problem is, the Bible never says there are enemies. Jesus died for the people outside the church. In fact, Jesus only died for people outside the church when he died. Think about that, right? So when you raise kids and you're like, they're the enemy, they're the enemy, they're the enemy, they're the enemy, and then they go off and live out in the world and they meet somebody who doesn't have the same ideals as them, and they're like, wait a second, that person is really kind. That person is really compassionate. Wow, that person is really joyful, It like breaks their theology because they've been told they're the enemy the whole time. That's not in the scriptures, right? This is a woman who is not part of the people of God and is modeling the character and love of God in incredible ways to Moses. God uses what this woman has to raise up his people. We are all created in the image of God. So you knew, you should not be surprised to find people who maybe have ideas that are against the scriptures, but are still reflecting the broken image of God within them in certain ways. It shouldn't blow your mind that some people are incredibly kind. You shouldn't be like, oh, they're right. And if you do the thing where you preach everybody out there outside of the enemy, it's going to be really hard for you to reconcile that when you're like, yo, this person is Preaching something is clearly against God, but they're the most kind, loving person I know, right? How does that happen? Well, they were made in the image of God, right? Now they still got the problem of dealing with their sin. You don't get to heaven by being kind, but that's another sermon for another day. Here we go. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, so Moses goes out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So Moses grows up with this understanding that God is going to deliver his people. Moses grows up with his heart for justice and compassion for the oppressed. Moses grows up with this bent for action. He's not a passive guy. And he goes out, and it says he looked on their burdens. OK, so what does that mean? You think that's the first time Moses realized that his people were burdened? Is that what it means? He's like, I had no idea. I'm going to kill somebody. No. He had seen it over and over and over. He had been raised in it. It's just that on this day, he was tired of it. On this day, he was tired of waiting for God's redemption. On this day, he decided, I'm going to fix this, or at least this little part of it, right now. Moses got impatient, is what happened. The compassion isn't the problem. The heart of justice that Moses had isn't the problem. The problem is his impatience. It's good that Moses cares for these people. It's not good that he thinks he needs to solve this problem his way right now. And it's really not good that he sees anger and violence and murder as the means to get this problem solved right now. And look at this. He thinks he's doing this great thing to lead the people. Right. He comes back out the next day. and He's like, can't we all get along? And do the people want to be led by him? They don't. Right? He thinks what he's doing is like standing up for justice and doing the right thing. And like, I'm doing what God wants me to do. And he comes out to lead the people. He's like, can't we all just get together? And they're like, you're a murderer. You're going to murder us too? So he thinks he's stepping into leadership. And the people don't want anything to do with being led by him. And now all he has is fear and the expectation of consequences for his action. He ends up running away out to the desert and basically is now self exile. You you should write this down. I, I wrote this down because I need it. You probably need it too. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe you're better than me, but here we go. The right plan at the wrong time is the wrong plan. Right motivation, wrong time, terrible results. And and this is funny because so much of the Christian teaching is just trying to get people to do what God wants them to do, right? Like pastors spend hours and hours and hours just do what God wants you to do, do what God wants you to do, do what God wants you to do. But inferred in that idea of doing what God is calling you to do is to do what God calls you to do when he's calling you to do it and also the way he's calling you to do it. Moses is right in line with the heart of God to deliver his people, but Moses wants to do it right now. And because he wants to do it right now, he doesn't have time to see how God wants to do it. And so he ends up getting himself in a huge mess by doing it his own way in his own time. We talk a lot about how not doing what you know God wants you to do is a miserable place to live. Anybody ever done that before? Right? God calls you to do something, you don't do it, and you're like, ah, it hurts your soul. Or God calls you to do something and you're like, man, I'm not gonna do it. Or the other thing is that like God calls you not to do something, you do it anyway, and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Anybody? Okay, me and two of you. Okay, that's fine, right? The rest of you, super holy, good for you. This is a different sort of a situation, but just as miserable. Doing what you think God wants you to do, but doing it your own way and on your own terms and in your own time. It's a miserable place to live. I'll do it, God but I'm going to do it my time and my way. It's like, there's, there's not a lot of peace and joy in that type of attitude towards the Lord. It never turns out well. And here's where Moses ends up at the end of verse 15. He's gifted and talented and passionate and motivated, and he can't help anyone because he's impatient and angry and violent. At this point in Moses' life, moral character cannot sustain his gifting. He doesn't have the integrity to lead God's people at this point in his life. His sin has disqualified him from using the gifts he's been given. And what's going to happen is Moses is going to spend the next 40 years of his life probably thinking how he blew his shot to be useful to God. And this is nothing new to Americans in 2022, right? Just open up the newspaper, right? That's such a dated reference. None of you know where to find a newspaper if you had to, right? But like, look at the news stories, right? Pastor falls, pastor falls, pastor falls, pastor falls. Why? The moral character, the accountability in that guy's life does not match up with his gifting. And he disqualifies himself from leading the people of God. Happens over and over and over and over and over again. We got to finish. I'm running out of time. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled it. So Moses is out in the desert in Midian, and this guy has seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs with water to water their father's flock. Verse 17, and the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Moses has this thing about justice inside of him that he literally cannot turn off. Right? He just got exiled from Egypt because of this thing. And he's like, that's not right. I'm going to do something. I'm like, bro, calm down. Right? <laughs> Verse 18, and when they came home to their father, Riel, they said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? So dad's like, how'd you show up early today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Verse 23 During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's just about one of my favorite verses in the entire scriptures. And God knew. And so we have these two stories unfolding simultaneously. At this point in his life, Moses has gone from very comfortable existence, raised in the palace, most powerful dynasty on earth, now wandering as a foreigner in the desert. From all outward accounts, this is an incredible failure in Moses' life. Moses blew it, and there's no going back. And simultaneously, while all this is going on with Moses, God is hearing the groaning of his people, seeing their struggle. And like I said, one of my favorite verses, Knowing. What's going on? Now, somebody somewhere at some point in time has probably said to you, God knows, brother. Right? I, what do they mean when they say God knows? Right? Like, my parents just died. Like, my family's blowing up. My kid's not doing well. I can't fix this. Like, we're just gonna tell me God knows, write it on a coffee cup and we'll be fine? What should it mean to us if we are to understand the power of the idea that God knows? Because here's my problem. I know that God knows. I just wish he'd get on my timeline. I know that God knows. I just wish that he'd do things in a way that I felt like he knew. I would find much more comfort in the idea that God knows if he did things that I wanted him to do. There's times when God just doesn't work fast enough for me. There's other times when he's calling me to do something I don't want to do yet. So simultaneously, God is both too slow and too fast for me. How's that for high maintenance, right? Like, I'm like, God, slow down. God, speed up. God, do what I want. And yet, supposedly, this is written in a way that God knows should be enough for us. So what should it mean to us if we understand that God really knows? Well, if God knows and he is who we think he is, then we have nothing to fear. If God knows, then we don't have to be in a hurry. If God knows, then we don't have to compare ourselves to anyone else. If God knows, then we don't have to be in a hurry. If God knows, then we don't have to be in a hurry. See, I wrote this for myself, so that one got in there three times. If God knows, we don't have to control and manipulate other people. If we really believe that God knows, then we should find rest. If we really believe that God knows, then we should have peace. If we really believe that God knows, then we should know joy. There's a passage in 1 Timothy where the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, his young pastor, like that he's mentoring. And he tells him to warn the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. And the idea there is that there's different people listening to you, Timothy, and some of them need to be warned, and some of them need to be encouraged, and some of them need to be helped, right? So, like, there's these different people. For example, we don't want to encourage the idle. But that's terrible. And we don't want to warn the faint-hearted. Like, Like, they need to be helped. So there's a group of people listening to this who are stubbornly resisting the plan and timing of God. And I don't want you to be encouraged in your stubborn idleness this morning. I just don't. I want you to read the story of Moses and be convicted. Like, hey, maybe I'm not doing what God has called me to do and I'm more like Moses. But then there's another group of people listening right now who desperately need to be encouraged by the idea that God hears and God sees, and God knows. And and I pray that you allow the Holy Spirit to encourage you in those things this morning. You have nothing to fear. You, You don't have to be in a hurry. Anxiety does not have to own you. God knows. God is producing a people who the idea of God knows means we don't have to be in a hurry, because we know that he knows. God is producing a people who have nothing to fear, because we know that he knows. God is producing a people who have found rest and peace and joy because we know that he knows, and that's enough for us. Amen? Worship team, come on back up, and we'll uh, sing of that good God that I just told you loves you so much and knows what's going on in your life. Father, I'm grateful for your word and how it encourages us and strengthens us and rebukes us sometimes if we need it, Lord. And Lord, we covered a lot today as we watched you build uh, a people, Lord. Uh, We saw a people who walked by faith, Lord, who told stories of your goodness, who produced the next generation of people who walked by faith. Not walked in comfort or convenience, Lord. Maybe that's convicting to us, Lord. We saw uh, a person who disqualified themselves from leading because they weren't waiting for your timing and weren't waiting for your way. And then we found rest in the idea that you know. You hear, and you see, and you understand. And you're not indifferent to the hardship of your people, Lord, but you answer each and every prayer in a way that we would answer it if we knew what you knew. And so we rest in that, Lord. I thank you for your word. I pray it would reach these people, each and every single person you brought, wherever they're at, Lord.